First Samuel chapter 6, where we're picking up at verse 1. First Samuel chapter 6. Now, you know the routine. We'll ask the Lord for uh, his blessing. Now, Heavenly Father, as we look at this uh, portion of your sacred scripture, we pray that the Holy Spirit would open our hearts to show us the gospel, show us Jesus, show us truths that can change our lives. Even tonight, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, chapters 4, 5, and 6 of 1 Samuel kind of go together. They tell one story. We could only get to chapters 4 and 5 last week, so we're at the tail end of a pretty action-packed drama. Um, let me refresh your memory. In chapter 4, quickly, uh, the Lord is cleaning house, his house, and as Israel is moving out of uh, the period of the judges and now into the period of the kings, he's removing, the Lord is, uh, the scandalous high priest Eli and his two wicked sons who were priests as well. They corrupted the ministry, as you remember, there at the tabernacle, the worship center, and contributed to the pathetic state of Israel's spiritual life. So as a disciplinary measure, uh, which God will often resort to, he brings in the bad boy Philistine army that comes in to his own people in their promised land, and they dominate. And you'll recall 34 thousand Israeli soldiers fall. Eli's two sons, those two boys I told you about, Hophni and Phinehas, who were at the center of a money and sex ministry scandal, got their just desserts, and they were killed as God had foretold and actually orchestrated. Now, Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 is one of those verses you ought to memorize. Don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked, for a man will reap what he sows. If you sow to the sinful nature, from that sinful nature, you will reap destruction. And so that's a, a promise. It also, the, the better half, of course, is if you sow to righteousness, if you sow, uh, you, you live your life for the glory of God, from that you will also reap the, a blessing instead of discipline. And so uh, picking up the father, uh, high priest Eli of the two boys also dies the same day uh, as he's reacting to the news of the Philistine victory and that the Ark of the Covenant had been captured. Uh, now the way is clear for Samuel, who's going to step into the role of high priest. Now, the, the big news was that the Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant, which is the heartbeat and soul of Judaism. And you do not have life with God if you do not have the Ark of the Covenant. It's the way it was. You'll recall, uh, we'll put it up there on the screen just to refresh your memory for all intents and purposes purposes, it really was uh, the throne of God. The Lord told Moses, I will, I, I will be enthroned there, the mercy seat. And on top there, covered in gold, the high priest one time a year would put the blood, sprinkle blood there. And he said, without that blood that was on top of the Ten Commandments that were broken, 
There was no communing with a holy God. And so really, we, we saw last week that it's the whole gospel. Well, 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 where has this gone? It's no longer in the temple. It's taken by the nasty, godless Philistines. Have this. And nobody knows what they're going to do with it or if they'll ever see it again. And so that's sort of what happened there. And so you have that in mind. That's missing in action. As we go into chapter 5, we find out that, thank you very much for that. And you can turn the lights back on. Thank you. And uh, chapter 5, we find out that God knows how to discipline Israel, uh, allowing the Philistines to dominate them. And at the same time, he's fully able to defend his own glory when it came to the ark being over in Philistine territory. So we saw in chapter 5, now leading us to 6, the Philistines uh, set the ark, newly captured as their big trophy and prize in their pagan temple in front of the statue of their beloved god, Dagon, and the next couple mornings, the high priests of their religion come in and find that Dagon is found prostrate before the Ark of God, decapitated and dismembered. But uh, that's not enough for them. More than that, the townspeople, wherever the Ark was parked, would break out in tumors and lumps and bumps and disease and die in mass. And so they saw, said, you know what? This isn't good. Let's move this to a different town. So they, they moved the ark to a different town. And it happened again in Gath. And so they said, you know, this is just a freaky coincidence. Let's move it out to another town. They had five cities. And so on city number three, uh, those folks said, are you trying to kill us? You know, and they're breaking out with tumors and they're dying and they're panic stricken. The cry is going up to heaven. And that's where we left off the panic and the dying town of Ekron convinces the five Philistine lords now, and I quote, send the ark of God, the God of Israel, back to where it belongs, lest we all die. So now in chapter six, now you're ready to go. The Philistines are, have admitted defeat to Yahweh anyway, not so much to Israel. Uh, the Philistines now realize that they must get rid of the ark and send it back if they're going to live. Verse 1. When the ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory seven months, the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, their sorcerers and their false prophets, and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. They answered, Well, if you return the ark, of the God of Israel, do not send it away empty, but by all means send a guilt offering to him. Hmm. Then you will be healed, and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. The Philistines asked, what guilt offering should we send to him? They replied, five gold tumors and five gold rats, according to the number of the Philistine rulers, because the same plague has struck both you and your rulers. Make models of the tumors and of the rats that are destroying the country and pay honor to Israel's God. 
perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did when he treated them harshly? Did they not send the Israelites out so they could go on their way? So we'll pause there. Note takers, Roman numeral number one, the futility of resisting the Lord. Seven long months. Must have felt like seven long years. I would think your opening verse there says it was seven months of really needless suffering. Why did it take them seven long months to finally say, you know what? This isn't working for us. Let's get rid of this thing. Let's, uh, we we kind of get that whatever force is behind this box, and they call him the God of Israel, he is unhappy here. He's not happy with us. He wants us to do something, but it's going to take us seven months of pain and suffering and dragging our feet to carry it out. Why so long? Well, they want to say face it, and he costs the answer is the same. Why anybody resists doing the right thing? Pride. Never underestimate the stubbornness of the sinful nature. Now, when the rock statue of Dagon uh, was miraculously broken into pieces before the Ark of God, it was really time to do some rethinking. And uh, when the entire uh, city was engulfed in death and panic and plague, and wherever they hosted that ark, it was time to reconsider who is God. Did one Philistine repent? Did one Philistine become a believer? Did one Philistine want to get right with the God of Israel? No. Not one, according to the record, I think in the biblical record we would see. There was a handful of those who repented and saw Dagon smashed into pieces. Or saw that every time, wherever you moved the ark, there was utter pandemonium. And they put two and two together. They get all the facts, but they don't want to do. They don't want to comply because they have a sinful nature. Romans chapter 8 says, the mind of sinful man is death. But the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind, the sinful nature, is hostile to God. It does not submit to God or his ways, nor can it ever do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. So I'm taking a little bit of time here with the opening verses because of the danger of giving your sinful nature an inch. You still have a sinful nature. It lies dormant under the power of the Holy Spirit, counted as dead or crucified with Christ. But it is there nonetheless. And we have the option to either feed that nature or starve it. We can crucify it or we can facilitate it and cooperate with it. Christians can do nasty things just as bad as non-Christians if they just let that ugly beast off the cross and let it at the helm. Don't do that. 32 years I have to see lives wrecked, destroyed, 
because it started out with just a little hardness of heart and just a little bit of cracking the door open so that the sinful nature, which is hostile to God and never can submit to his way, nor can it ever do so, they let that happen, and then all hell breaks loose. And I, I just, from my heart to yours, if you're thinking, you know what, just going to let it come out of here and there, watch out. It'll take you down so fast, so furiously, and it'll leave no survivors. Be careful. And so with that, uh, that really is the difference between us and them. Them meaning those who perish. We, we are submitters. They are resistors. That's the only difference. We cried uncle, our father, <laughs> better. <laughs> All right, verse 2. Uh, the Phil Philistines uh, call in the witch doctors, which is really what they are. They're diviners, they're called. You know, in the Hebrew, it's kasam, and it's the word for Balaam and the false prophets and the sorcerers. So they call in, uh, you know, they make a call to the psychic uh, line, you know, and they want to find out, and look at what they're after. We want to give it back. But we don't want to face them. We don't want to have to kind of talk to them and say, okay, you guys, you Jews were right. Okay, your God, he's big and strong, just like all your songs, all right? Your God is greater. Your God is stronger. God, you are higher than whatever. And here you go. Take this box back. They don't want to say the words and face the faces. So they call in like, what should we do here? Well, they say, number one, don't send it back without admitting you're wrong. So without a, some sort of sin offering, acknowledge your guilt. Um, bring, it, uh, bring it back with appeasement gifts. Like, you know, maybe in essence they're saying, Dear Yahweh, uh, here's, something, uh, here's something to say. Sorry for all the confusion. Your people left the box in a field. It looked kind of nice. Uh, we didn't know it belonged to you, but now here it comes back to you and affix a nice little Hallmark card when you care about sending the very best. I don't know. I have that in my notes, but next time I won't be using it. <laughs> I've got a suggestion what to bring. How about repentance? How about your heart and not some really ugly gold jewelry? I've seen worse, too, by the way. All right. Uh, quote, we often try to get around the real issue of heart surrender by offering other concessions instead. Now, the Philistine leaders say, okay, got it. We'll send along some reparations. What do you boys suggest? And they say, well, five gold tumors and five gold rats because of the plague. Now, there we go with the ugly gold jewelry. Now, three words linked together give commentators a clue of what kind of plague the Lord was using. Bubonic plague or black death. Uh, you've got a flea-borne infection that is carried by rodents causes terrible tumors. You can go online. I caution you not to. 
um, especially after lunch or dinner, because it's really disgusting. The lymph nodes become tumorous. And uh, so that's what commentators say is going on here. Now, now, why the tumors? Why the rats, the gold? And, 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 and here's what it was. They're trying to communicate to the force. Uh, this is how they communicate to their own God. You know, maybe he doesn't speak their language. And so it's like he'll put it all together. There's five of them. There's five of us lords, and there's five Philistine cities, so he's going to know. And now, uh, the rats are the cause of the problems, the tumor, the results. Uh, we are sending you and your box away, but we would also like for the rats and the tumors to be taken with you as well. <laughs> so that's kind of a sign language. It's kind of a way to communicate. You know what? When you're used to just talking to rock statues, you know, you don't know that the Lord can understand like a cry from your heart. So ironic to me, verses 5 and 6, the Philistine soothsayers rebuke the Philistines for their hard hearts. I love this. They're saying, what's taking you so long? You like the Egyptians? Don't you remember the story in Sunday school? Well, wait a second. We're Philistines. How do we know about that? Oh, somebody's been reading the book of Exodus because the book of Exodus is around. Chapter 8, verse 15. They've read it. They know it. They're saying, you know what? You're repeating the same mistake the Egyptians made. Get a move on it. So the paraphrase is, you best pay homage to Israel's God. Hopefully this is going to work. Maybe he'll lift his judgment off of you and your gods and your cities. By the way, why are you being as stubborn as the Egyptians and Pharaoh? They got a clue. When the Lord dealt harshly with them, they figured it out and let his people go. Now, God will speak truth through a donkey. He will, th he will speak through a false prophet like Balaam or these pagan soothsayers, because that's the absolute truth. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that anybody who speaks for God... Uh, has seen the light. It just means God can get his message out through whomever he chooses, and God will glorify himself even through the mouths of those who don't know him. You all remember Caiaphas in John 11, verse 50. He prophesies correctly about Jesus, and then he helps crucify him. The Lord puts truth in the mouths of even the demons are screaming out, you are the son of God. It's true. And then he tells them, and you'll be quiet about that. But everybody knows the truth. The demons know the truth. The false prophets know the truth. The fortune teller in my reading through the Bible, I'm reading through Acts right now. And I just read about uh, the false uh, fortune teller who is crying out after Paul and the, and the apostles, uh, these men are telling you the way to be saved. Doesn't mean she saw the light. It just means God is saying, you know what? Everybody knows. Everybody will know. In heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess the word in the Greek as I've taught you homo logeo same word agree 
every tongue will agree with the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus said if the rocks could tell the truth and shout out, they would. But, you know, so moving on, the false prophets tell the Philistine lords to get a move on. And they have a suggestion how to transport the ark back to Israeli territory. Verses 7 through 12. Now then get a new cart ready with two cows that have calved and have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pen them up. Take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart. And in a chest beside it, put the gold objects you're sending back to him as a guilt offering. Send it on its way, but keep watching it. If it goes up to its own territory toward Beth Shemesh, then the Lord will, has brought this great disaster on us. But if it does not, then we will know that it was not his hand that struck us and that it happened to us by chance. So they did this. They took two such cows and hitched them up to a cart and penned up their calves. They placed the ark of the Lord on the cart and along with it the chest containing the gold rats and the models of the tumors. Then the cows went straight up toward Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. They did not turn to the right or to the left. The rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now, uh, we've seen the futility of resisting the Lord, which was your point one. Point two would be the futility of testing the Lord. Now, you'll notice that the Philistines are still not 100% sure that all this is God's doing, so they'll return the ark. But in doing so, they've devised a little test stacked against God. Now, Silly Philistines, that is not going to work. Uh, now, they want to make sure in returning the ark that it is, after all, the Lord. Because in their warped thinking, after all, one would never want to repent unnecessarily. And so we need to find out. So we're going to rig this thing so that if it goes straight back, it will be the hand of God. And here's what they're thinking. Number one, by nature, two milk cows, which have never been yoked, wouldn't want to pull a cart at all. They've never been broken or trained. They're not used to that, uh, let alone doing it together in unison. They would resist their yokes quite naturally. Number one. Number two, by nature, Two milk cows, which have just given birth to calves and have been separated from them, once freed the maternal instinct, uh, would draw the cows home to the calves. They have milk they need to get rid of, and they have a maternal instinct that will want to feed their young, as all uh, animals do. Now, what do they find? Well, the god of the microbe is the god of the flea, and the god of the rodent is the god of the livestock, and the god of you and me. He tells the stars where to go in their orbits, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 26. He tells the ocean waves 
where to stop. Job chapter 38, verse 11. He tells the hurricane force winds on the Sea of Galilee to be silent, and he tells the waves to stop. Matthew chapter 8, verse 26. He directs the heart of kings the same way he directs the flow of a river. Proverbs 21 and verse 1. Attention all false prophets. The maker of heaven and earth and the sea and everything in it isn't going to have a problem getting two mama cows back to the promised land. Amen? All right, verse 12, you see, ready, set, go. Uh, the cows are released. No problem with the yoke. Oh, no problem. Oh, we've done this all our lives. Straight, a beeline. No problem. They just start pulling the cart. It's 10 miles to a town they've never been to. They find it perfectly easy. No stopping to feed themselves. No turning back to feed their calves. No hesitation. No meandering. No driver to lead them. And where do they end up? In a Levite town. A town that has Levite priests who are the only ones permitted to deal with the ark. If it went anywhere else, the Israelites couldn't do a thing about it. Because only the Levites knew what to do and were ordained by God to do it. But these two cows, never been yoked, don't have a driver, want to go home. They're lowing the whole way. This has been a revelation for me in my study. They're lowing all the way. Why does it say they're lowing all the way? The word in the Hebrew is to groan with aversion to a task. In other words, it... it it's groaning. They're, they're saying, I don't want to be doing this. I'd rather be going home to feed my calves. And one commentator said, isn't that the story of the Christian life? <laughs> the Holy Spirit's got us headed to the promised land, and we're going straight line groaning all the way because it's against our natural inclination because we want to turn around, we want to do this, we want to go right, we want to go left. But isn't it beautiful that the Holy Spirit can take us and contrary to our natural inclination to get us there, straight line. And it doesn't matter whether you're singing hymns or groaning. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, it says, while we're waiting for the fullness of our redemption along with, with the earth, that we groan inwardly. Who doesn't? Self-denial every single day? Every single day when you have an opportunity to respond to somebody, you can't just respond naturally as your sinful self and snap their heads off or be impatient or be uh, disrespectful. You're called to a higher standard and you have to just silence, be patient with the weak, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile. That's an inward groan every day. You have to take 
your thoughts captive. Every single day you have to work, work, work. Work at the marriage, work at the job, work at your Christian testimony, work at your own Christian discipline in your own wicked heart that wants to rebel. So every day we are going to the promised land. We're on schedule. We're keeping a straight path on the straight and narrow, but we're lowing all the way. I just love that. I was encouraged because I do a lot of lowing. <laughs> it's not easy to be a Christian, by the way. Have you noticed that? All right. So notice they see the miracle. God. Did somebody just, just do like a popping sound over there? Mike D, what is your problem? Did you do this? That's what I heard. All right. I'll be talking to you afterwards. I'd like to talk to you right after the service. All right. Notice this really drives me crazy, this part right here, not that. One time, now, now you've done it, I'm off. <laughs> One time on a Sunday morning, I'm in Romans and I'm listing all their sins in the text of just terrible. And they've done this and this, and Paul says they're this, and they're, they're disobedient to parents, they're this, they're liars, they're duh. And I hear this pen snapping just like this and and everyone starts to hear it you know it's just clicking click 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 someone's clicking their pen now there's nobody in here so don't all look around nervous but Sunday morning and you hear click 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 so and I'm reading and 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 they had problems lying and they were covetous and they were uh stealing and they were clicking their pens and then you hear click click It was beautiful. <laughs> Let's finish the chapter. Verse, verse 13 and all the way. Now, the people of Beth Shemesh. Now, can I pause and just say, listen. Pastor Jim's last name is Shemesh. And his wife is Beth. So it's really weird reading this and not thinking of Beth. All right, now the people of Beth Shemesh <laughs> were harvesting their wheat. Okay, we're back to the Jews, all right? And they're just, it's, it's June, they're harvesting their wheat. Somebody said it was June in the, one of the books I was reading. Uh, harvesting their wheat in the valley. And when they looked up, they saw, they probably heard the lowing, <laughs> and they saw the ark. They rejoiced at the sight. The cart came to the field of Joshua, not the Joshua you know and love, the Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And there it stopped beside a large rock. The people chopped up the wood of the cart and sacrificed the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. That's a no-no, by the way. No girl cows, only boys. Uh, Numbers chapter 4, verse 15. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord together with the chest containing the gold jewelry <laughs> and placed them on the large rock. On that day, the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. The five rulers of the Philistines saw all this and then returned that same day to Ekron. 
These are the gold tumors the Philistines sent as a guilt offering to the Lord, one each for Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. Those are the five cities that they occupied there in really what is Israel. Verse 18, and the number of the gold rats was according to the number of the Philistine towns belonging to the five rulers, the fortified towns with their country villages. The large rock on which they set the ark of the Lord is witness to this day in the field of Joshua there, Beth Shemesh. But God struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And the men of the town asked, Who could stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? Like, who's next? Who, who wants this thing? Uh, verse 21, Then they sent messengers to the people of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, the Philistines have returned the Ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your place. <laughs> All right. So number one was the futility of resisting the Lord. Number two, the futility of, uh, of uh, testing the Lord. I don't know if I actually told you that. And then number three, the futility of presuming upon the Lord. Now, the Ark of the Lord can be a dangerous thing to have around no matter who you are. Apparently. So like the scene from the Chronicles of Narnia, which I uh, reference quite often, Lucy is hearing about this King Aslan, the lion, for the very first time. And, and you've heard me say this before. She's amazed that he's a lion and that he's tame and they could deal with him and not be eaten alive. And so she says, and she concludes, then he's safe. He's quite safe, isn't he? And then Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. And now, so what goes wrong with your phone at church? <laughs> so what goes wrong? Why is the Lord so upset? Let's talk about this. What makes the Lord unsafe to his own people? Well, it's usually about cell phones. <laughs> it's usually about, all right, it's usually about holiness, all right? Now, verse 13 starts out all right. Everybody's happy. God's got no problems. You know what? I don't even think he had a problem about the cows. They want to have a holiday. They want to have a barbecue. They want to offer something to the Lord. They see the cart. Let's get rid of the cart. We'll use it as wood. And we're going to offer these two cows, okay? They're, not, they're, they're overjoyed. You know, that's not the problem. The problem isn't that they want to celebrate. It's the problem that they take off the lid of the ark. <laughs> Where, first of all, the Levites even weren't allowed to touch it. It had rings and rods. You weren't supposed to touch the ark ever. You weren't supposed to look at it on the outside. So the first order of business was to cover that thing up. They all knew that. The Levites should have. You're supposed to cover it. When they moved it, when the cloud would move and then the ark would go with it and the, all the furnishings, they covered that up. 
They had a way to do that. You weren't supposed to touch it, look at it. God forbid you put your fingers on the lid, lift it up, and look inside. So 70 of them wiped out. Now, let's talk about that. They lift up the lid is called the mercy seat. So really, the theological lesson that the Lord has is teaching them and anybody who's read this account is, is that without the mercy seat, you cannot enjoy what's inside the presence of the Lord. If you take that cover off, the covering that will cover your sins, atone for you, the word in the Greek manuscript of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint. So when the Hebrew went into Greek, that word for mercy seat is the same word in 1 John chapter 2 for propitiation, which means payment for our debt that takes away God's wrath. So it just means the payment of the blood of Jesus. All right. So it's the same word, that mercy seat, the covering is the same as saying the cross of the blood of Jesus. All right. So what they did is they said, we want what's inside. We're curious about the, the Lord and just opening that, taking that away and then wanting to enjoy the presence of God and that like that's ever going to happen. And God says, there's only one thing that happens when somebody comes near me without the covering of the blood of a mediator. It's complete and utter death. There's no, there's no life. There's no hope without the cross. And people do that. It's the religion of Cain. I'm not bringing a bloody sacrifice. I'm going to do away with that cover. I want direct access to God through my fruits and veggies and my hard work. He says, you can't come to me without a cover of blood and mercy. With the cover and blood of mercy, it's fine. <clears throat> what is it? Matthew, I hope it's chapter 22, the, the parable of the great banquet. Just a wonderful story where uh, it's the king is inviting everybody in the town to his son's wedding. And they come. And then the king walks through the wedding feast. And he spots, you remember, he spots somebody sitting there without wedding garments. Now, to our ears, we don't even understand what that means. Uh, rich and poor alike could come to these uh, royal galas and, and they'd have to wear a royal robe that was provided them, a wedding garment, but you wouldn't dare go in without one in your own soiled robe, threadbare clothes or whatever. And so the king spots somebody at the, the, the wedding feast that says, friend, what are you doing here without a covering, the robe of righteousness, the mercy seat? The cross, the mediation between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Do you have no covering? You just ripped the, the lid off, and here I am at the feast. Let's dig in. Without your covering, you're a dead man. He says, throw him out. And then he uses the code for what we know for eternal damnation, utter darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. You can't come to God without the mercy seat, the blood of Jesus. I was sharing the gospel with somebody years and years ago. 
John, uh, at a pool in Petaluma, the community pool, and my kids are little and they're running around and jumping in the water and I was sharing the gospel with this guy. And I just brought up sin and judgment. He said, oh, no, 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 God, God is more merciful than that. And I said, what about when you die and stand before him? What are you going to say about all your sins? And he said, when I, and I've told you this before, when I stand before God, there's going to be light. And I'm going to fling myself into his presence. And he just put his arms out, and shut his eyes. And I remember that to this day. And he had this beautiful, euphoric look on his face. And he was like, just basking without the covering. And I said, what are you going to do about your sins? And he said, I'm just going to fling myself into the arms of God. And I said, no, that's not how the Bible says it works. And he says, yeah, there are other ways to think about coming to God. So we need the covering. So they get it, the survivors. They say, who could stand in the presence of this holy God? And the answer, no one um, without the covering. And oh, happy day when we have the covering. And you all have, well, most of you probably have the covering. And the way to get the covering is to confess your sins and say, God, I need a savior. I'm sorry. I don't want to come to you without a mediator. I don't want to come to you with my, my soiled clothes, all my sins and all my mistakes. I want to be covered. And then he says, oh, man, he says, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We go into that presence of God as dearly loved children, covered. Man, climbing on, on him in love, and there's no fear for us because of that covering. We have a clean conscience. Our sins are paid for. God is safe and more than happy and willing to pour out his blessing on his dearly covered Children, I'm going to close with a quote I really enjoyed. The most phenomenal and most exhilarating fact of Christianity and the entire gospel, and unfortunately not always grasped by everyday Christians, is the tearing of the temple veil that opens the way for believers into the holy of holies place. In other words, do you realize the joy of being covered is to be able to go into God's presence and call the maker of heaven and earth Papa God? He, the writer was just saying nobody really gets that because we don't find ourselves taking advantage of that. 24-7, all the comfort that we need, the instruction, the guidance, the self-control, anything that we need by the living God who's no longer angry because you've been covered, paid for. By whom? By himself. And so it's just a beautiful way to close. I, I love the ending. To our friends, it, you know, I, I just picture them sending an email. And to our friends in Kiriath, Jerob, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come on down and pick it up and take it to your place. Uh, <laughs> No, nobody knows why they picked on them. Uh, some commentators say maybe they had good relations and wanted them to take care of the ark well, or maybe they had bad relations and wanted God to deal with them. 
But here's the bottom line. The folks who have it now don't want to bear the burden of living with such sensitivity and holiness to be have the presence of the Lord in their midst like that. So here are my four reflections from my time of study. Number one, resisting God brings frustration, pain, and suffering. Submitting to God brings blessing, joy, and hope. Number two, unbelievers know more than they let on to knowing. It's not a lack of information so much as an unwillingness to swallow their pride. Number three, God's Holy Spirit can keep me on the straight and narrow to the promised land, though my sinful nature is lowing the entire way. <laughs> Number four, just because we're believers and beloved children of God doesn't mean we can approach God carelessly or without respect, or to take advantage of his wonderful grace that came by way of the blood and death and suffering of Jesus Christ. In this regard, in matters of holiness, God isn't safe, but he's good. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, just a great time in your word, just refreshed and instructed and comforted and guided and reaffirmed in the in our faith and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ it's just a wonderful privilege to uh, be be with you and have the light of the Lord and to walk in your love we thank you for all your blessings in Jesus name amen